Thank you for listening to this message from Forward Ministries. We pray it blesses you, encourages you, and inspires grace in you today. You can visit us online at forwardministries.org. So I'm going into the book of Ephesians. We're going to go through the book of Ephesians over the next couple of weeks. And really what you see is with Ephesians is that's what it's all about. He's presenting this idea of a body, a spiritual body, a spiritual family of God on this planet. And so the first section of Ephesians is is the gospel, and he's talking about this mystery of how, you know, it used to be the Jews were the chosen ones and the elect, and so God chose to bless the world through them, and then now it's through Christ. And so he gives the, the gospel the first three chapters, and then the last three He goes through basically, all right, because this is true, then this is what it should look like. So it's like the last half of the book. So you've got some homework over the next few weeks. Uh, It's only six chapters. Read the book of Ephesians. You can probably read the whole thing in 30 minutes. But I would recommend just start reading it. If you really want to geek out, jump online. I posted in our our, uh, online group um, some links where you can go study a little bit more. You can study about Ephesus and Paul's chronological journey of his mission trips and where Ephesus fits in and all of that. And, and you know, I, I wanted to start out talking a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was an interesting town. It was um, a port city, and it was kind of the center of Roman, Greek uh, trade, but it was, it was full of darkness and mysticism, and, and, and like magic even. And it's interesting because, you know, we, I think we read the Bible sometimes, and we don't realize that the, of, that of the real world implications today. So we don't all have to be Bible scholars and understand the context of who the Ephesians were and who he was speaking to. But you can use basic study tools, like when you approach a particular book of the Bible, you do want to know who is he talking to, who's the audience, what is it that we're trying to accomplish here, how much of this applies to me now, how much of this was fulfilled, how much of this is coming. You know, you just get a contextual perspective, overview of what is it that we're dealing with here, because a lot of times the Bible is read and one passage is lifted out and a doctrine is built on it. So like you've heard, God won't put more on me than I can bear. You ever heard that? God won't put more on me than I can bear. That's not even what the scripture says. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And it says, God won't allow more to come upon you than you can bear, but will with that, when the temptation comes, make a way out. So it's not God putting it on you. He's saying, hey, I'm watching. I got your back. In fact, there's... I've got some support for you here. And then you tie that over to James 1.13, and it says, don't say that the temptation is from God. So one scripture has created a improper, I think it's a doctrine of demons, to be honest with you, to say, God won't put more on me than I can bear, straight from the devil, and then make songs about it. And then, and then improperly quote Job, who repented for what he said, God gives and God takes away. It's true that Job said that. But that's not true, of, not true of God's character. He repented later on. Read the rest of the book of Job. Anyway, I'm going to bounce around for a minute, y'all, all right? I could do this as like a class and course and all these details, but I, I, wanna, I want you to go 
and use the resources that are out there, dig into Ephesians a little bit. Ephesians is interesting, though. Right in the middle of Ephesians, or uh, the city of Ephesus, was uh, the Temple of Artemis. Now, some myth mythological fans or maybe comic book fans, Artemis sounds familiar, right? So in, in, in this temple to Artemis was basically a sex cult. And there were even in the street carved certain, you know, kind of parts of anatomy, let's say, to guide you down to the temple because in this temple there were acts going on that were tied to pagan gods that if you performed these acts with the temple priestesses, you got power. Weird, right? I mean, there's some weird churches out there, but I hadn't seen one come say, hey, come have sex with us, you can have more power, you know I mean? <laughs> All you teenagers, aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> so it's interesting because we see this in modern day uh, you know, we, we don't really see how it ties together, but you hear of the Temple of Artemis. Uh, you hear the, the, the uh, Artemis is the Greek word for Diana. So over in Acts 18, 19, you see where Paul goes in and he's disrupting the idol builders and they were building structures or, or uh, idols, little statues to Diana. And Diana, they say, this is where the mythology comes in, but it's interesting, D uh, Diana was supposedly an Amazonian. You, you following me? In fact, there is folklore that this city, Ephesus, was built and started by the Amazonians. <laughs> Wonder Woman... What's her name? Where's she from? She's an Amazonian. Interesting, right? It's like, that stuff's way back then, not have anything to do with today. Well, now, some of the modern-day comic books have kind of redeemed the idea of some of this stuff. You can go back to the Temple of Artemis. We'll pull down her. She might be a little distracting. But it's like, wait a minute, this stuff hasn't done anything to do with me. No, we are reaching into our past, and so follow me here, okay? So Diana was most likely some type of half-breed creature, one of the offspring of the fallen angels before the flood, and all, you know, mythology is tied to a lot of that Nephilim bloodline and a lot of that stuff from way back then, and and those, those creatures that set themselves up as gods and kings and queens on this planet to rule and control mankind and had these powers, you know what I mean, that built these megalithic structures all over the planet, Tiwanaku and Pumapunku and Machu Picchu was later, but, you know, you've got these structures, right? You've got these structures that were built, and we don't have cranes strong enough today to lift these blocks and put them into place, but yet there's these structures. There are structures in, um, in uh, South America in, what's the country? Peru. You cannot take a razor blade and put it in between these rocks because they are so tightly stacked together. 
And they're built in such a way that not even the earthquake, the most powerful earthquake that this planet has ever experienced could knock those stones over. Those creatures, those half-breeds, those fallen angel offspring set themselves up as gods and kings on this planet, and God wiped them out. But their legend lived on. And their legend lived on because their spirits remained, and their spirits infiltrated society, especially organized society, and set themselves up in the rulers of those areas over kings. They would attach themselves to them, and it was like that's where all this pagan stuff came from. You didn't just have mankind say, hey, I think it'd be a good idea for everybody to worship me. That, that came from all of this stuff that's tied together. Now, I'm really just kind of quickly overviewing all of that. But you see somebody like Diana or Wonder Woman with all this power, they believed that a woman, Diana, existed with powers like that. Maybe not with the magic lasso and the invisible airplane. <laughs> But there were people that worshipped what they believed was Diana in spirit form. And if you went down to the temple and had sex with the priestesses, you got a little bit of that power. That is who Paul is writing to. And he goes down, he finally goes over there, and he spends two years there debating and reasoning and presenting the gospel and dealing with these mindsets. You know, you, you think that your coworkers are hard to reach. What about a sex cult priestess? <laughs> you ever tried to minister to one of them? <coughs> Big, yeah, just one, maybe once or twice. I mean, I, you know, I'm, it's a little funny. I wanted to tie some modern, modern understanding into it. But it, it's interesting how much of our society is still infiltrated by dark magic from thousands of years ago. And, and, and even like Star Wars, which I love. I, I grew up on Star Wars, man. I'm telling you, I, my, my understanding of miracle came from the force, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> and there's a lot of Jewish mystic Kabbalism written into how the Jedi harness the force. And, you know, it's, it's so, we ha so we have to understand there is understanding out there in the world that looks like spiritual power. Ultimately, that's what Paul gets to at the end of Ephesians addressing. But so this is the setting of what we're dealing with here, Ephesus. So let's jump on over to Ephesians chapter 9. I'm just going to read through, and I don't think I've really ever done this, but we're just going to read through the entire book of Ephesians over the next, I think, three weeks. Y'all good with that? And we'll stop and comment as we go. So I'm going to have you read. Everybody read out loud, and I'll just stop you when we get to an important part. All right, ready? All right, stop. It's going to be a long three weeks. All right, ushers. Now, again, we could go really deep, and there's some areas I will, but mostly we're going to skim through this. Now, here's the thing. I want you to read your Bible. Say, read your Bible. Will you do that? Will you read your Bible? You promise? Don't be lying in church now. This week, next week, read Ephesians. It might even inspire you to read some more of it. But read it, and I would recommend 
over the next couple of weeks, read it in different translations. Now, just so you know, the ESV, the English Standard Version, is probably the most accurate in, in agreement with the original language for Greek. The New American Standard Bible is another one that's really good. We're reading out of the New King James. It's pretty accurate. A lot of times we'll read out of the NIV. NIV is not as close as the ESV. So, you know, know your Bible. Know what you're reading. Do, do you know what translation that you're reading? I like to read out of the NLT, the New Living Translation. It's not, it's, it's a paraphrase. It's not actually a translation. In other words, they took the original and they said, well, we're going to say it this way. So it's really good at getting context, and, or not context, but concepts, kind of the overall picture of this is generally what we're talking about here, and we're looking at it from this type of just everyday modern language. But if you want to get into the original understanding of like what the writer would have intended for this particular word, go with the ESV. But I'm telling you, the new King, I mean, the King James only bunch that say the King James is the anointed word of God and it's the authorized straight from heaven, heaven's seal of stamp. It's like, if you really want to read the most accurate translation, you better learn how to read Greek. So anyway, Paul. Who's Paul? Paul was Saul. Saul was killing Christians. There's, it's funny when you read these commentaries, there's a description of Saul, and he is small. He's got thin hair. It says that his eyebrows meet. <laughs> And his nose is crooked, and he's bow-legged. Seriously, you read these commentaries of, of reports, historical reports of Paul. And, and this is the guy that God uses, right? Anybody got crooked noses and unibrows? You're in good company. <laughs> Killing Christians. Think about it. Osama bin Laden. What if he got saved and wrote the Bible? And he was good at it, he says. Paul, an apostle, so he's establishing his authority, right? He's writing, you see where he's writing to, an apostle of Jesus. See, we read the Bible and we don't, we forget that when he wrote these letters, they were announcing a new way. In fact, it was called the way. And the way is how they referred to it early on. You know, we read it and we, we just kind of skim across these types of things, but this was a very strong, authoritative uh, statement that he was making here. I am sent by God to carry this message. And, it, and it's very clear. And, and you know, back then there, there was something behind somebody taking a stance of authority. So Paul, an apostle, the ascent one of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Some early, back on one, some early, um, go back to verse one, please. Some early manuscripts don't have um, who are in Ephesus. And, and it was thought that this version was just one that was sent to Ephesus. In other words, this was what they would have called a circular letter or a letter to be put in circulation to all the churches. And this may have just been one that got sent to the Ephesians. So there are thousands of documents, thousands of letters, thousands of, of, uh, of uh, letters, like actual physical books that we have documenting the validity of the Bible. You go back and you, you set 
early translations next to each other, next to our translations that we have now, they are very, very close, identical in a lot of areas. You take early and modern copies of the Quran and put them together, they're so far off. I mean, you know, there, there's, there's more historical documentation to prove that these letters were taken seriously from the beginning than any other book that exists. If you have people say, you know, they attack the validity of the Bible, no. They just haven't done their homework. There is so much documentation supporting it. So, to, uh, and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, does that apply to you? Are you faithful in Christ? I hope so. All right, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he, this is not just a salutation. He's establishing this is what I'm bringing to you. Now, we know that grace is God's divine influence on in our heart. Grace is not mercy. Mercy is forgiveness. Grace is a power that works within you. It strengthens you in your inner man. Peace is a wholeness. Peace is not just, I feel pretty good today. I'm at peace. I'm not freaking out. You know, that's not, that's not just peace. I mean, that's not what, you know what I mean. Peace, like when Jesus says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, that word peace in the Hebrew is the word shalom, and it has to do with wholeness. Jesus gives you his wholeness, his completeness. So he's, he's, he's stating here, there is a wholeness and a completeness. You got to remember, these people were running down to the temple. Well, let's keep going here. <clears throat> Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father. See, there's, there's a reason that these things are put in there. God and Father. It was, you know, Jehovah was known as God, but he wasn't really known as Father. It, it's a new concept for Jesus to represent God as Father. In fact, that's one of the things that the, that the, uh, the priests of the Levitical system, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the ones that were carrying the authentic word of God, that should have recognized the presence of the Messiah when he showed up. You know, the Bible scholars of the day were angry with Jesus because he talked about God as his father. So when you look at this, I mean, when you go through, and, and, I, and I realize this thing, you, you might be thinking, this is going to take a long time. We're still going to get out of here at normal time. But I want you to get the significance of every word. Don't take it lightly. When you read it, look at it. Think about it. Stop on every word. In fact, use blueletterbible.org, and if you activate the uh, Strong's feature at the top, you click on the, the you can click on each word. It brings up the original language, and it gives you the definition. And in Greek, for those of you that are want to dig deeper, it even gives you the tenses. Um, so, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has say has. Doesn't say is going to. Doesn't say as if you work for it. I mean, who would have thought how important the word has is? One more time. Has. Who has blessed, bestowed upon, granted, given freely, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. A lot happening here. Where are the blessings? They're in Christ. Where is Christ? In heaven. Where's heaven? In me, right? 
Jesus said the kingdom of heaven doesn't come with outward observation. It's near you. It's in you. What he's saying here is God, the Father, God, the God of Jesus, the Messiah, the one who has brought salvation, in him is every blessing that God has to give, and he's already given it to you in Christ. Now, what were the Ephesians doing? They were running down to the temple to not, and it wasn't just the act, the sect acts. It was all the, there was all kind of ritualistic things happening down there, all types of, all types of worship of different pagan things. I mean, the devil likes to make people look silly. And when you get into that realm of, of playing with pagan gods, you're going to do some weird stuff. Don't do that. These people were doing some weird stuff back then. And so they were looking for spiritual blessings. Running down to the temple, thinking, if I do this, I can pay for this, and I can get a spiritual blessing. They would take the statues, and they thought having the statue with them was a blessing. Maybe they would bury it in their yard to try to sell their house. Those of you that were raised in a particular uh, church know what I'm talking about. The, uh, how the, so how those ancient pagan ritualistic worshiping of all these idols is still around today? Just take a look, take a look toward where they originated in Rome. All the saints, all the different things. This is a saint of this. That's pagan. It's really interesting. Well, I took Reese to a... Um, Remember when we went to the, the museum tour and we saw that mummy, your, your field trip in school, and we saw that mummy in Atlanta? Well, in, next to the mummy, they would have all these little jars. I also went to the, did you go to the King Tut exhibit? I went twice. It was amazing in, uh, in Atlanta. Anyway, they, they've got, they'll show where they... Um, They've got the mummy, and then by the mummy, they'll have all these statues and everything. Not, you know, you, you don't really get, you don't really understand what all this does. I mean, ancient Egyptian mythology and culture, and you don't really understand what, what it is. But this one guide in the um, museum in Atlanta, and you can go to this museum. I wish I could think. It's, it's on Emory, it's on the campus of Emory University. Not Fernbank. Carlos, yeah, Carlos something. Go there, I'm telling you, it's, it's really cool. Um, Gosh, I'm thinking I've got 12 rabbit trails on. They've got a, a legitimate mummy there, right, that was found in, by somebody connected to Emory University, and he bought it in like a curio shop, one of those curio, one of those weird shops back in the 20s or something, and bought it, brought it to Atlanta, and then sent it back over to Egypt, and it was one of the, one of the mummies they'd been looking for in part of their collection. So because of that, that's why Atlanta was the first place that they brought the exhibit to Atlanta. Anyway, so I'm listening to this guy, and he's describing what all these little statues are for next to the mummy. And he said, oh, yeah, well, they had these, um, you know, this would have been the statue of fertility, and this would have been the statue of prosperity, and this would have been the statue of, you know, this, this, this. And so if you need this in your life, then you go to this, and you have this statue. And it's like, wait a minute. That sounds kind of familiar, because there's a saint for everything. I mean, I, I, I get it. I'm going to offend some people. I'm going to ruffle some feathers. But anyway, if, you, if you're getting your toes stepped on or you know some Catholics, pray for them. Pray that they know who Jesus is. Amen.
So anyway, you see that type of thing. It's like, let's splinter all the focus off of the one true God and have all this diverse godhood and all, you know, like even today in the, in the modern comics that we have, there's a god of this and a god of that, and there's a new movie that comes out, and it's like there's a whole new god. Where'd that god come from, you know? What's his universe? And that, that's all tied back to splintering up and distracting the focus off the one true God. So what Paul is doing is he is establishing all spiritual blessing in heavenly places is in Christ. He's bringing a, a, a polytheistic group of people into an understanding that there's, a, that there's one true God and he's in Christ or he, he, Christ represents him. All right, next verse. There's just so much, you know, it's why I chose not to try to go write my notes out and just, and just preach out of what I've studied over the years and some new stuff. But I want you to go dig. Have some fun with it. Go find out what you can find out about the Temple of Diana and what they were doing. Be careful, but read about it and understand what these people were dealing with, you know. So just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, next verse, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. He's, so he's staying on the context of fatherhood according to the goodwill of his pleasure or the pleasure of his goodwill, the good pleasure of his will, there we go, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. All right, that's a mouthful. Go back to verse three. There's a whole doctrine built on predestination and the elect and the ones that would be saved, right? In Calvinism, the hardcore Calvinists believe that God knew from the foundation before he created anything who would choose to get saved. And so that it was, they somehow relate that to that was his choice then because he foreknew that it was really his choice that only these people would be saved. And somehow that has been translated onto this particular understanding. And let me ask you a question. When you're reading Scripture, would that have been a thought that these original hearers of this word would have lifted out of this? Probably not. It was a later obscure doctrine that came into the church that said, this is only for the elite, this is only for the elect, and it's based on some type of misinterpretation of God's sovereign foreknowledge. There's only a couple words, there's only a couple passages where predestination and foreknowledge are listed. And the doctrines that have been built on that were, you can't even lift them out of the original text. You have to learn some separate systematic approach to understand that and then be indoctrinated by it. And those people that believe that, man, I'm telling you what, you can't, you can't hardly argue with them. But so I've, I'm really just going over that so fast. But back, so verse four. What is predestined is that people would be saved through Christ. So if you trace the history of the word elect, is this, are you, are you learning something here? Because, I mean, this applies to some, this doesn't apply to some, some of that came out of that background. The word elect, if you really follow it through in the Old Testament, it have always applied to the Israelites, the Jews. God elected Abraham and that bloodline to be the elect people, his special, his chosen people, 
to bless the world through. And so there's this mentality that he's about to deal with that you see over and over and over again that Paul constantly has to address is that the Jews thinking that they're still the only chosen ones, that they're still the elect, and they're the only ones that are going to be saved. And even Peter, a father in the church, it's a revelation to him that non-Jews can be saved. And that's really a lot of what he's dealing with here. You know, there, there's, there's things that we know and we read about in God's revealed history that we don't have a lot of understanding of why he would have done those kinds of things. And, and, it, and it's interesting how people will take an instance like that, and I'm not saying you're doing this, I'm just trying to address it quickly, and apply that universally in the future to everybody. And we really don't know what was going on at that point, you know. So what we can do is build doctrine on what we have rather than trying to read something into it. It's, context, it's a contextual approach. Read the scriptures before and after, and what, what do you know that it's actually saying? Like, there's not one scripture anywhere in the Bible that describes the elect as the only people that are going to get saved and the ones that God chose ahead of time that they were going to get saved. People that believe that will twist them to make it say that, but it doesn't actually say that. So, what he's chosen is humanity. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall have everlasting life. Amen? So it's like, okay, is it whosoever or is it just these ones here? Which one? So when you have a seeming contradiction... There's something that we're misunderstanding. The Bible does not contradict itself. There's only our perception of contradiction. And when you see something, and there's websites, and they will have, this is where the Bible contradicts itself. This is where the Bible says this and then says this. And it's like, all right, let's, if you really want to do that, if you want to cherry pick, let's understand the entire thing and then go and look at every instance of where that type of situation is addressed and then understand what we think is a contradiction. And when you have a universal statement like whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved or that there's only one way to the Father and that is through Christ, there are non-negotiables. Anything that starts to mess with that is a special interpretation that just is designed to create confusion in my opinion. So jump back over to 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Remember, at the first of the letter, he's talking to the saints in Ephesus, verse 7. In him, now he gives the gospel, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the rich. Now, you know, we read this and we think, oh, I already know that. But imagine if you were reading this for the first time or you were charged with announcing this. You'd be careful to say it in a very specific way to get the right ideas in there so that they understood this is how it works. This is what he's doing. You have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Next verse. Which he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together. Now, this, so this is the mystery. He might gather together in all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Next verse. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. And man, I'm telling you, inheritance, I love, I love to preach on that. When you go, when you do your study of Ephesians over the next couple of weeks, dig down on inheritance a little bit. So being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. All right, stay on verse 12. All of that that says that he works everything to his purpose, all of these types of universal God's in control statements, you have to come to the same conclusion that the author comes to when he makes a statement like that. To say he works all things to the good of his glory and say my child died of cancer is not the conclusion that he's coming to here. The conclusion of all things that he's talking about is that Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In other words, Christ in you, you experiencing redemption is when you let yourself experience redemption, then you are participating in that, him working the plan of salvation. Do you see? To try to lift it out into to specifics, it, it just, it, well, I'm, I'm going to keep going because I, I don't want to get stuck on this because he addresses it in chapter two as well. So let's keep going. In him, you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having, also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. It's all about presenting how salvation works and your place in that. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father may give to you the spirit of wisdom. So it's like he tells you what the gospel is, then he prays for you. I pray that you get it. Pretty much is what he's doing here. I pray that the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of him. Back to 17. Now, do you need a little spirit named wisdom that's going to float into the room? Oh, your wisdom. The spirit of wisdom has now shown up. Now I could have wisdom that I didn't previously have. Is that what he's saying? Usually when they talk of spirit of, it's kind of like conceptually. It's talking about in the vein of, in the idea of, in the spirit of. Like you write a song, I'm writing this in the spirit of, you know, whatever, Marvin Gaye. But did Marvin Gaye's spirit manifest and you partake upon his spirit and you write a song that sounds like Marvin Gaye? I hope not. If you do, let's talk. Or you could universally apply that to the Holy Spirit, which is in you all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. But what is it in the knowledge of? Who's him? Jesus. I mean, it's, I'm overstating, but it all comes back to him. Next verse. 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand, at His right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. So he, he presents it in such a way that you understand that you're in Christ, right? That your redemption is in him. And he put all things, and so he, now he makes it about Jesus. See, and th- I love this because this is how you understand what faith is. Faith is not your power to believe. When you say, I believe, you're not dependent on your ability to believe because what belief is, is trust. And under trust is confidence. So to believe in God is not this thing that I have to build up a strong belief within me. It's how convinced am I that God is who he says that he is and how confident am I in who God is. So he takes the focus, he shows the focus of you being in him, and then he puts the focus on Jesus. If you ever feel like that you're less than in your capacity to believe, or you don't have enough faith, you're looking at it the wrong way. It's like if Jesus were standing in front of you, how confident are you that he is who he says that he is, that he is God? That's how you build faith. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. And this is where we're going to go over the next few weeks is the church, which is his body. Say his body. The fullness of him. How much of Jesus did the Father give to his body? The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this is important because when he jumps back later on and starts talking about apostles and prophets and teachers and the gifts and all that kind of stuff, it's one spirit. One spirit. He says over and over, one spirit, one spirit, one spirit. The fullness has been given to the body. The body functions separately, but it's all one spirit. So we'll pick up next week in chapter two and probably review a little bit in chapter one. We won't have as much background. Uh, We're not going to show Wonder Woman clips next week. Don't worry. It's going to be, we'll jump in and we'll dig in. But I want you, I want you to read so that you know where we're going. And even if you have some questions, um, but the predestination thing is, read some articles on that. Educate yourself. No, because here's the thing. We live in an area, in a region of this nation, where a lot of the pastors went to schools that teach elect, and it kind of gets filtered in. And I'm telling you, I, as a pastor, and I, I don't, don't want to create division. I want to see unity happen. We go through the rest of the book of Ephesians and you see how much Paul is trying to bring unity in the body. But there is pervasive in this area the idea of Calvinism that that takes away free will and it's just like God's in control. And you talk to people, a lot of your friends, you might even believe, well, this bad thing happened and I don't know why God did it, but somehow it all's going to work out because Romans 8, if I take it out of context, says everything's going to work out for good. I mean, it's kind of like I, I can hear cows 
mooing as they're being slaughtered at this moment, all those sacred cows. But I'm telling you, it's, it's a big thing that we have to deal with, and, and he starts with it here by saying the predestination thing was that it was predestined that you would be saved or that salvation comes through Christ. Then he, really, if you want to drill down chapter 2, watch this. When you go home today and you read chapter 2, you realize the us and them is not the ones that can be saved and the ones that can't be saved. It's the Jews and the Gentiles is really the difference. You with me? It's a little different today. I realize, you know, I'm not preaching a topic and kind of coming to a conclusion. This is going to be something that's ongoing. But I want you to participate because I want us to develop good habits of getting in and reading Scripture. How does it apply to us? And I'm telling you, when you read it, it's not, such, it's not that long of a book. Read it and stop. And on, especially where you've got a passage that, uh, that, that traverses like three or four particular Scriptures, don't just read three and then read four, and then read five. Read it all, where there's a big capital letter, and then it ends with a period. Read that entire sentence, and make sure you get what it's saying. And if you don't, let's talk about it. I want to use that Facebook group. You know, we'll have some question and discussion. I'm not interested in, we're not going to debate, not, and we're not going to post a ton of links in there trying to prove a particular point. We're going to have adult conversation. How's that sound? Y'all want to do that? Because in this area, these are some things that have to be addressed and dealt with. Dealt with. Dealt. We've done deal with that. You going to read Ephesians? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We want to know your word. We want to be confident in your word. We want to be able to uh, recount your word to be able to teach people. But more than anything, we want to know you and the power of your gospel. And that's why we're going to take this word and assimilate it into our minds and our hearts so that we are well-versed in faith righteousness, that we understand what it is that you're presenting in Christ, and we can live within that. We can understand it for ourselves, and we can represent the true gospel to the world around us. You know, maybe you're here today, you haven't said yes to Jesus, you're not sure.